Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, how do I start this? So um, I just want to apologize in advance. I know I've been going a little bit down a bit of a rabbit hole in terms of like where I'm coming from. I did a teacher check-in. Uh, and so that rabbit hole has gotten bigger because I've been, I'm actually interviewing this guy next week and I've been doing a lot of research because I really like him. His name is Evan Thompson. Evan Thompson wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Buddhist. And he is a philosophy professor up at, uh, in Vancouver. He, if you, if you check out, he's been on all the podcasts. He's been on 10% Happier. He's been on the Secular Buddhist. He's, he's very interesting because I feel in many ways he's actually doing what I'm attempting to do. Um, he has different terminology for it, but I'm really looking forward to talking to him. I'm hoping that I can pester him to becoming, I can add him to the roster of the bachelors and the peacocks of wicked smart people that I pester as often as possible. Um, and so we'll see how that goes. But he emailed me back right away. Um, and so what we'll do is I'm going to just kind of unpack that a little bit. Um, kind of, I guess really you could just say if we had to drop a pin in the kind of current landscape of this kind of Dharma work, mindfulness work, American Buddhism work, like what does that look like? Um, and then I'm going to put you guys in some groups. And I guess the discussion today, to just be prepared, is um, put you in groups. And I want to have a conversation about some ideas that you would further like to explore on Sunday. So what, what are some stuff that you would like to explore? Uh, and what is some stuff maybe you'd like to either let go of or do less of? Because we've been doing this for a long time, and I, I'm always happy to come up with stuff. But I'm really curious to hear from you guys specifically about some stuff that you – ideas, concepts, practices that you would like to bring to the Sunday a little bit more explicitly, which is actually very helpful for me. Um, so we'll do that, and we'll practice a bit too before then. Um, so how do I say this? So – um, and also, I, also a lot of this really started from my conversation with Ann Glog. If you haven't heard the interview with Ann Glog on the Secular Dharma Foundation podcast, you should check it out because it's really good. And so I, I guess basically where to start is that I, Dave Smith, as a teacher, and whether I like it or not, I am definitely a product of what's called Buddhist modernism. Um, and I knew a lot of this information, but like it, it's a lot more interesting. Buddhist modernism is kind of this uh, study, uh, a phenomenon, you could call it, of what happened when Buddhism started coming to America, starting in the early 1900s with a lot of Asian Americans who actually were Buddhists. They, they were here for a lot longer. And sort of like what it's become, it's sort of this white educated version of Buddhism. Um, and so that started really actually in the late 1800s when, when there was a movement, and this actually is a product of colonialism, ironically. And that was a movement in Sri Lanka and Burma when the Christian missionaries were coming over and trying to turn Buddhist countries into a different religion. You know, people like Lady Sayadaw uh, and some of the monks said, we need to get the practice of meditation. We need to get the Dharma out of the monastery and into the villages before everybody turns into a Christian. So it's kind of a social political move. And so as a result of that, people like S.N. Goinka emerged and, you know, people like Jack and Joseph and Sharon went over to India. And now all of a sudden they could take a 10 day Vipassana course, which is very, very new. 150 years ago, you know, nobody had access to a Vipassana 10 day course. That's a very much a product of Buddhist modernism. So then, so then there's this back and forth that's been going on for the last 40 years. People come over here. We go over there. We come over here. We go over there. And there's this kind of new, thought around Buddhism that has been a result of that. And I'm, whether I like it or not, I'm 100% totally a product of that. If had that not occurred, 
there's no way I would have stumbled into this practice. Uh, it's odd enough that I did when I did. Now, what, now here's another thing that, that has emerged out of that, which is really kind of what I want to talk about more, that I have um, uh, been kind of pushing back against a little bit. And I think this is actually a bit of a problem. Um, and that is what's called Buddhist exceptionalism. And that is um, Buddhist exceptionalism is the idea that Buddhism is somehow more logical, smarter, better, more sophisticated than um, any of the other religions or philosophical thoughts in the world, which to some degree, I mean, I would probably argue is kind of true, but only true for me. You know, I wouldn't make, uh, and so what happens in Buddhist exceptionalism, and this is actually a product of, um, you know, the kind of people who encountered it, you know, this is smarter, this is better, this is more intelligent. And this is where the science becomes a, a problem. And that is, you know, and now they're trying to say, of course, now there's all these fMRIs, and they're trying to basically use science to claim that everything that the Buddha had to say was correct and right, and they're trying to um, validate it. And so this is, this, is, this is where Evan Thompson's work, I think, is really interesting because he's really pushed back against this. And you've probably heard me say this before. There is, and I learned this in my work with Eve Ekman, there definitely is, if you've ever been to a Buddhist center or a weekly Dharma class, they're, they're out there, there is a kind of stink in the room of, what we're doing here is better than what everybody else is doing. You know, this kind of, um, we're more intelligent, we're more sophisticated, we're doing this smarter practice. And there's actually a kind of contempt, which is, which is from Paul Ekman's point of view, and this is kind of where it's really important to kind of assess for yourself, is contempt is, is understood to be the most destructive emotion in the human system. And a contempt is, uh, uh, is assuming or believing that you somehow have the moral or superior high ground than other people. And so there's, a, there's an elevation of one's intellect, and then there's a key kind of devaluing of other kind of um, other people. Now, you've probably seen this play out in the American landscape, actually, at this current moment. So if we're contributing to that in any way, we're not helping matters whatsoever. Right. That is just not helpful at all to assume that. And so there is this kind of big, uh, issue that he's one of the only few people talks about that is this idea of, of Buddhist exceptionalism and that they're trying to, to basically say, well, science is confirming, uh, that this is true, which it's completely and totally not actually. A lot of the ways they're looking at it scientifically, um, is, is very early on. And I think actually they've kind of gone too far that way. And so, um, how do I say this now? So, and I've done this, and this is just because this is for personal reasons, in the exportation of Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism, what has happened is some of the more metaphysical or spiritual or kind of even indigenous ideas that we see in pretty much every Buddhist tradition, we, and I've done this and I'm totally guilty of it, is we kind of put that aside. So we, anything that sort of isn't scientific or logical, that feels mysterious or religion or, you know, esoteric or any of these ideas, uh, the tendency is to, is to push that aside and say, well, Buddha, the Buddha didn't really teach that. That's, that's, that's just cultural add-ons. And that's actually completely not true. There definitely is, um, an aspect to the practice 
that is certainly mysterious and there's certain things that we can't, can't quantify. Um, now I do that a mostly because I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. I think it can become a big distraction. And at the same time, I have to be very careful that I don't become too dismissive of that stuff at the same time, which is quite easy to do. So moving a little bit forward, and I'll try to keep this short, uh, into secularity, why I, why, and actually it was funny. A woman interviewed me the other day for her, uh, for her book that's coming out. And she actually introduced me as a secular Dharma teacher, which, you know, I've never heard that before. She said, I'm here with Dave Smith today. He's a secular Dharma teacher. And I was like, Ooh, that feels kind of good. I've like never heard that before. Um, so that was kind of cool. Uh, and so where I come from that, and this is why I want to talk to Evan about that is I'm actually not, and maybe I come across this way. I'm not really interested in what science has to say about Dharma practice. I'm more interested in what the therapeutic world has to say. So I'm not really into the secular side of science through the realm of quantitative data. Like, I don't give a shit what parts of my brain light up when I practice loving kindness. You know, all that stuff. I'm not interested in the brain at all. And I think that there's, 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 there's definitely a religion in, in the new world of, um, kind of, um, the religion of the brain. And, and this idea that you see, you see it on the MIT website, actually. And I think it's a problem. They say the mind is what the brain does. And that is totally ridiculous. And so just if we just map that out for a second. So the idea that they're looking for something in the brain that like they can quantify or that they can validate. And I think they're barking up the wrong tree because if you look at consciousness from an early Buddhist perspective or from even cognitive science, uh, consciousness or the mind is an emergent process. Okay. It's not something in the brain that projects a screen onto reality. And then that's what we call the mind. That's ridiculous. I think. And so it's an emergent process, meaning that I'm an organism and I come into contact with an environment and I come into contact with the environment and I bring six sense experiences to that, which is why I'm called a sentient being. I have five senses and I have the sixth sense of the mind. And when, when me, the organism collides with an environment called the world, consciousness arises out of these six doors. And so that, that that's a little bit mysterious because you can't really quantify or pin that down. And when we practice meditation, when we practice the Dharma, when we practice mindfulness, that's actually what we're exploring. We're not like looking in at the brain and seeing what the brain is doing. That's absolutely ridiculous. But what we're doing is we're, we're trying to observe what happens in consciousness or in mind when an organ and an object are interacting. Right. So we have the external experience, the internal experience. You guys have all done this. This is not that easy to do, actually, turns out. The, the wild thing is that you can do it. Uh, and it's actually not that easy to do. And that's really what we're after. So, so me and, and so just to kind of fast forward to mentoring, um, the measuring stick that, and I've talked to some of you about it. And if I haven't yet, I will. Um, the measuring stick that I'm using is, is what we're doing here actually contributing to your life in a meaningful way? That's really the only measuring stick that seems to matter for me at this point. You know, does this practice, does being involved in this group, does going on retreats, does this Dharma thing, whatever you call it, is it improving your life? Is it helping you become more content? Do you feel more content as a result of the practice? 
Do you feel like uh, you have a, sen- a deeper sense of purpose that's not just about achieving status in the, in the world? Uh, and does your life feel more meaningful? And so the, the metric there, that's not really a quantitative metric. That's what we would call qualitative, qualitative research, which is, you know, and you know, like, you know, you're the expert on you, you know, how, you know, it's the quality of your life. And, you know, if, and I think the Buddha is basically saying this early on that, that and he says this, he's, if what I'm offering you, it's not whether it's true or untrue, this whole truth word is a big problem, first of all, but the real posit is, is, what I'm teaching you is what I'm offering. Does it improve the quality of your lived experience? If it improves the quality of your lived experience, then you should continue it. If it does not improve the quality of your lived experience, then you can let it go. Right? And so, um, you know, on a secular side, so I think, uh, I think it's safe to say that one of the greatest advancements, I don't think we've made a lot of advancement. Brain science and all that neuroscience stuff, I think, again, is a bit barking up the wrong tree. I think the, the secular work that makes more sense and is more valuable is the therapeutic. And we've made insane advancements. You know, 30 years ago, good luck getting trauma therapy. Like if you were like sexually abused as a child or you're like a drug addict, you had some real hard shit growing up and you walk into a therapy office, man, they don't got much for you 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, forget it, you know? And so in the therapeutic world, the advancements that they've made and that they continue to make are really, really profound, you know, internal family systems and EMDR therapy and somatic experiencing and all of the MBIs, mindfulness-based interventions. That on the side, and I wouldn't necessarily call that science, um, but I guess you could probably call it science on some level. Um, that's qualitative, and there, there's, and so the the I think the marriage or the emergence of that therapeutic world and contemplative practice is really, for lack of a better word, or actually no, it's probably good. That's what I feel like I'm doing. That's what I'm mostly interested in. And anything that, you know, anything that if it's secular and improves my experience therapeutically, I I continue it. If it doesn't, I let it go. There's lots of therapeutic things I've been introduced to that I've let go of. I'm like, yeah, that's not really working for me. That's not really my thing. Um, Same with the Dharma. I mean, I certainly have picked and chosen different things. But I think if you hold these two, um, which is ironically going far, far back and then far, far forward. It, it's not really Buddhist exceptionalism. Uh, Evan Thompson uses this word cosmopolitan Buddhism, which I don't really like. So I'm going to pick on him about that. Uh, so we use the word secular Dharma. So I really feel like at least I have a better word than one person. <laughs> um, so, um, I'm going to stop there. So this word truth is one way to think about it. I think that's finally helpful. I actually don't have much. The word, it doesn't mean that much to me. It sort of never has. And, and I'll kind of say why. And I'm trying to rethink how it can actually be useful. The way that it, that it makes most sense to me, and this comes really kind of from the right speech side of it, also being in recovery, and that, that is being true to one's word. So when I think of the word truth, the thing that makes the, the, the part of it, the integrity side of it, that seems to be the most interesting to me is, is am, am I being truthful or honest in the way that I communicate with other people, which is probably a pretty good idea. Uh, so when we think about truth, um, we want to think of, it's not a destination. Okay. Truth is not a final claim about reality. So, it, you know, it's not necessarily, or, or this is the way people think about it, but this is, this is the problem with it. It's not a belief. It's not certainty. 
Uh, and it's not actually necessarily knowledge because that, that, that's too, first of all, that de defies the laws of impermanence because truth is a kind of very fluid changing thing. So again, that would make it an emotional intelligence language. If you look at it as a final destination, as an endpoint of I have the truth and you don't, I'm right, you're wrong, we're done here. That's what's called destructive. So that would be a kind of destructive truth, which would be holding to a final claim. No more room for conversation, no more room for collaboration. And, you know, you've probably seen this. I know you've been paying attention to what goes on in our country, but this sort of seems to be the big problem. I have the truth. I'm right. You're wrong. And then that just creates a destructive situation. So it's not so not thinking about it in those terms, but thinking about it more as a destination, not a destination. I'm sorry, more as a direction. Am I heading in the direction? Uh, and so, so the, the, the idea of it being a direction or a process, the idea of ever coming to the end of it um, is really actually what we're trying to avoid, right? Uh, so seeing it as a, uh, as a direction. And also there's a guy, uh, Derek knows him. I don't think Derek's on here today, but he's a guy I met in Nashville, actually. He lives down in Tennessee. His name's Rami Shapiro. Um, He's like a Jewish rabbi, writer, super brilliant guy, recovery guy. And his whole thing about spirituality and religion and all this kind of stuff that we do here, uh, he, he says the goal is for the, the, the goal should be to keep the conversation going. That is a conversation that should never end, which means it's an open dialogue, which is kind of like our whole approach to the Secular Dharma Foundation of like all this stuff. Let's just keep the dialogue going and not try to come to any end point, which is actually really hard. Right. It's really hard to not want to stick your flag in the ground and saying, this is true. I'm done here. And that's really kind of hard to give up on. Um, so the word that we see is um, Sacha, um, which is the word in truth. And interestingly enough, uh, so noble truth is Arya Sacha, which, of course, I won't go too far down this road, but many people would say that this noble truth word is something that came way, 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 way later on. Uh, and if you do this little game, you can do it. If you have an iPad or a computer, you can look up, you can go to the Polycan and you go to the Sam Utenikai and you can do a word search for the word Sacha. And, you know, if you do this, it comes up, you know, 90% of the time it comes up, it comes up as a right speech thing. It comes up as a virtue. So truth is really an ethic. It's being truthful, honest, authentic with one's speech. And the only time it shows up as a definitive truth is in this word noble truth, which I think is, um, I don't know, I think it's risky business trying to think that we have the noble truth. And this also plays into what I talked about last week about what they call uh, Buddhist exceptionalism, exceptional, uh, exceptionalism, which is the idea that Buddhism got it right. Um, we have the, we have the truth. We have the real truth because it's a scientific model or whatever. And everybody else is kind of, you know, delusional. Now, some of you might feel that way. Sometimes I feel that way, but that's just not a really great place to be working from. It's pretty unkind. It's pretty contemptuous. It's pretty dangerous. It certainly doesn't help anybody. So if you look at the way to think about it, that might be, uh, uh, I think, useful. So the question, my question comes, is, is the word truth even useful, right? Like, I think by and large for me, mostly it hasn't been, and I've just kind of like, 
politely put it aside. Um, but it's actually an important concept, right? So the so William James came up with this in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds. William James is also one of the people who gets cited a lot in secular mindfulness because he was. Um, a great thinker. He wrote a book called The Variety of Religious Experiences. If you're not familiar with William James, you should check him out. He was a Harvard professor in the late 1800s. Um, they, he, has a, he has a couple quotes that are often cited by the secular mindfulness world around attention. But he actually says that the only really useful way to think about truth is what he calls a pragmatic truth. And so that means something is true if it works for you. So it doesn't, let me have some notes on this. So it's not, um, again, it's not a belief, a certainty, or a knowledge. Pragmatic truth is a result, uh, a result that you come to as a process of inquiry, which kind of sounds like Buddhist meditation, doesn't it? So pragmatic truth is something that you, you've decided for yourself because you've done some trial and error, you've done some inquiry, you've done some experimentation. You're like, I've tried this five or six times. Uh, and when I find that it works, if I do it this way, then, uh, then I repeat it, which is actually kind of like the most Buddhist idea. Cause that's the, the way the Buddha talks about whether something is skillful or unskillful. So we might even just plug skillful and unskillful in here. And skillful is something that you've decided works. And if you've tried it as a result of your own experimentation and you've tried it and it works for you, then you should cultivate that. If you've tried it and it doesn't work for you, it's not useful to you, then you should abandon it. Now, the thing about this that's so interesting is like, this is why the word truth is so slippery, is what's true for me and what's true for you, there's a good chance that there's going to be lots of differences, right? So this is why truth with a capital T, uh, ontological truth or certainty truth, which is Buddhism is certainly wicked guilty of falling. Actually, Buddhism falls into that trap as much as any other religion does. And some, to some degree, we're even more guilty of it because we have noble truths. We have the truth. Right. And so that is it's not a description of reality. It's simply something that works for you. Uh, and so when you probably heard this, too, a little bit, I'm a bit all over the road, but I'm trying to hit it from all territories is that later schools, they talk about you've probably heard ultimate truth and relative truth, which I think is a really bad move, because what that does, that's really where we get the patriarchy and the hierarchy from the Buddhist monastic tradition is that like the, the monks, the people who have, you know, in Buddhist teachers, even in our culture are famous for this shit. You know, the, the person who practice, I have the ultimate truth because I'm so well practiced and I have the true knowledge. You only have the relative truth because you're not there yet. So, so then that, what that does is it puts me in a position of hierarchy because I know what's best for you and what's best for everybody. Right. So that's usually how ultimate and relative truth get broken up. But actually, Goldstein talked about this in a recent talk. It's not so much that, but uh, relative truth is just how you perceive things. So we, we could probably say relative truth is really more like subjective truth. Well, you know, we could be in a similar context and in that context, I say, well, this is what I think and this is how I feel and this is kind of the way that I see things. Um, and so that's relative truth. That's relative to my experience. Now, I could be in the same context with Rachel and she could say the same thing and we could both be saying things that are very, very different, very, very uh, coming from different places. And what's going to happen is we're going to fall into the trap of which one of us is right and which one of us is wrong. And as soon as we fall into that trap, we're probably in trouble.
So relative truth is just really how you see it. And, you know, one of the things that we really want to try to do is to be open-minded and curious and uh, loose and a little bit like, you know, this is how I see it, but there's probably a good chance I'm not seeing it completely anyway. Right. Which is not, nothing that anybody says in a heated conversation. They're like, well, this is how I feel and this is what I think. And, you know, I could be wrong. I'm not totally convinced. And usually, you know, usually we're like, no, no, this, you know, we cling. We, 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 we're certain, you know, I do it all the time. This is definitely what needs to happen. This is the right thing. This is the only thing. This is the certain thing. This is the final thing. This is really the destructive thing. Because at, at that point, once I'm bought into my position or my view, um, I'm really not actually capable of hearing what anybody else might have to say. I'm sort of done, right? And so, uh, the, uh, so then the ultimate truth is, again, that's also very, very slippery. So relative is how I see it. Uh, ultimately, what we're looking for, noble is probably more like ideal. So if you're in a group of people trying to you come up, what, what's the, it's kind of like, what's the best case scenario? And so that would make it constructive. Constructive meaning, okay, this is how we see it collectively. Can we move forward? Uh, and so then again, it becomes the moving forward becomes the, uh, the direction, not the destination. Let's try heading this way. And so when we think about that, when we think about uh, the path or the Eightfold Path, this is kind of really what the Buddha's after. He's like, okay, like, see if you can, if you can just kind of get your life leaning in the right direction. Am I heading in the right direction? Right. And I think this is a great metric because I think a lot of times, uh, the device that we use, generally speaking, in the present moment, or whether whether or not we feel like our life is heading in the right direction, do you? I'm sure you have this thought from time to time. You ever have that thought? Am I heading in the right direction? Am, am I happy with the way things are going? You know, and I'm sure you have mixed feelings about that. But probably the metric that you use, and you you know, this is why mindfulness is so important, is how you feel, Vedana, and that's the worst measuring stick available. Right, because sometimes we could be heading in the right direction and feel like shit. Sometimes we can head be heading in the right direction and feel terrible. You know, feeling is just so problematic. It's just what's going on in the conditions of the present moment. We maybe were just in a bad mood, or we had a bad day yesterday, or a, you know, four or five things that we thought were going to pan out didn't pan out, and now we're just really full of doubt and confusion, and we think, oh, I need to rethink everything. I need to rethink this whole life thing. I I got it all wrong. I'm going about this all fucked up, you know? And what are you using? What are you using? What data are you using to come up with that conclusion? Just how you feel in the present moment. You're basing all that on your emotional state, your mental attitude, your state of mind. Like you see how like ridiculous that is? It's totally ridiculous and it's almost impossible to not do, right? So feeling, of course, is one of the foundations of mindfulness. It's one of the aggregate. It's a big, it's a big territory because basically what it boils down to, and this is all, you know, interesting because this is all the, the features of Buddhist meditation, or at least from psychological terms, is, is what I'm paying attention to, um, how I feel about that, uh, how I perceive that, what, so what is the story I'm telling myself about this? And then the other thing that's really kind of the thing that determines whether I'm heading in uh, the right direction or whether I'm getting locked in destination is the choices that I'm going to make or not make. 
right? Choice, which is a word that's super important, but doesn't really, you know, we don't, you, we don't, you don't hear a lot about choices when you go to Dharma classes. In fact, I did a, every once in a while, I'll do a little search. I did a search on Dharma seed for choice and there were zero results. So in the 4 million Dharma talks on, on Dharma seed, nobody ever thought talking about choice was kind of a good move. <laughs> right? This is kind of funny. Emotional intelligence this is kind of, this is their, this is their measuring stick. And that is like, you know, do I make good choices for myself? You know, generally speaking. And I think that's really the metric that matters the most because good choices, hey, good choices keep you heading in the direction that you want to go without there being the destination. So the thing that's so hard, and I think that makes it almost impossible at times, is how can one commit to heading in a right direction and abandon the idea of it there being some final destination? Like, I think that's all of this to say, that's, I think, what it boils down to, right? Am I committed? Am I willing to head in the right direction? cultivating the Eightfold Path, living with integrity, all these things that you're already all doing anyway. Can I have faith and trust in that process? And can I abandon the idea that I know where it's going to end? Right? And I'll tell you what, I've been burned. How many times have you been burned by the destination? You were, you were going to accomplish something. You were going to get a goal. You were going to get the job. You were going to get the degree. You headed in that direction. You got the thing. And then what? Nothing right? Not shit, right? So, I mean, the, the thing about it, too, it shouldn't be a hard sell, because how many times have you been burned by a destination before? You're like, here I am, I got the thing. I feel nothing, except for confused and disappointed. So, I think that's the general, and we'll, I want to put you guys in groups, you can talk about this. I'm sure you have a lot to say, I hope you do. Um, is that's it. It's destination, you know, versus direction. And the direction is the better, that's the better bet, right? But that means you have to live with uncertainty. Uh, you don't know how it's going to play out. Um, you're giving in to the mystery. Uh, it's not so calculated. It's not so analytical. Um, and the thing, the thing that I will say just personally before we move on is like, um, I'm so glad that I've been burned by the destination. I'm so grateful for being burned by the destination because I, I mean, I never, ever, all the stuff that I have now, all the stuff in my life that's meaningful, 10 years ago, I wanted no part of it. I never thought I'd get married again. I certainly never thought I would have kids. I was against kids fucking until like two weeks ago, man. Like I never thought that stuff was for me. Like everything, you know, I basically spent 20 years trying to avoid all the stuff that I love and appreciate about my life today. Turns out I was wrong, you know, about so many things. So that makes it a little bit easier for me to just say, okay, the destination is a fool's errand. And can I live into this direction? And also the direction also allows me to live a little bit more into the present time experience, because as I'm sure you can assess, that destination is always, always future obsessed. 